0: This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, I'm Tom Power. Welcome to Q. So Tim Meadows was one of the longest-running cast members on Saturday Night Live. He was on that show for 10 seasons, from 1991 to 2000. Can I just say those were big years to be on Saturday Night Live? He was on there with, like, Adam Sandler and Chris Farley and Mike Myers and Molly Shannon and Norm MacDonald and Will Ferrell. There's a couple of golden ages in that period. He had a character called the Ladies' Man that became so popular on SNL, it got turned into its own movie. Tim then goes on to be in movies like Mean Girls and Grown Ups and kind of never stops working. And now he's in this new movie called Dream Scenario. I don't know if you've heard about this movie yet, but the premise alone is fascinating. It's about a tenured college professor played by Nicolas Cage, who finds out that he's been showing up in millions of dreams all around the world, like showing up as a character in people's dreams. At first, he's quite innocuous in the dreams. Then, I won't spoil it, but the dreams change, and he becomes famous in a really complicated way. Tim plays Nicolas Cage's character's friend who's helping him navigate the whole thing. But Tim and I talk about a lot in this conversation. How watching the Talking Heads movie stop making sense was the thing that convinced him to take a chance on the arts for a living... What it's actually like when you're on stage with the late Chris Farley and he's improvising next to you. What was the song that the late Canadian comedian Norm MacDonald texted Tim shortly before he died? And what would Tim do if all of a sudden he started showing up in everyone's dreams one night? Is a really interesting answer to that. Here's my conversation with Tim Meadows. And I started out by asking him just what got him interested in this movie in the first place.
2: Just that it wasn't I had not read it before, you know, like I had not seen something like that. And it was a really great way of talking about fame and social media fame and and the fact that it was like this supernatural sort of way that he was becoming famous. And it wasn't it was out of his control. And so, yeah, it just seemed like a really original story. That's bottom line. It was an original story that I had not heard or thought of.
0: The film made me think about fame too. It made me think about the, you know, one of the things about doing this job is that I've, I've had the occasion to meet like really, really famous people Mm -hmm. and it doesn't seem like a great life. (laughs) (laughs) That's nice of you. Do you, do you, you have also, I mean, you're very famous yourself, but you, I know you are very, you are close with like very, very famous people. Do you know what I mean by that?
2: Yeah, I do. Um, one of the lessons my kids have learned is that fame and money does not bring happiness. And, and they see like, I'm, you know, I live a decent lifestyle, you know, whatever. And they're, they're, they're okay. But like, um, you know, it's not always fun. And I have friends that can't walk down the street and I don't want that kind of, I don't want that kind of fame. The kind I have right now is fine with me. People recognize me or they think I'm Don Cheadle or they think (laughs) I'm uh, a hootie and a bow Darius Rucker. And I just play along, you know, seriously, people have stopped me and thinking I'm Don Cheadle, but they will stop me and say, what a great actor I am. And then I will, like, take the compliment and then I, I, I'll i ask them, like, what did you like of mine? And then when they name something that I actually did, I'm really happy. <laughs> but when they say, like, oh, I loved you in uh, Hotel Rwanda or something like that, I just go, oh, OK, great. Thank you. Thank
0: oh, you, you say great. Thank you.
2: Yeah, I don't I don't say no, it's not me. Very rarely will I say no, that's that's Don Cheadle. Um, but I'll just because I figure, you know what? They want their their meeting with Don Cheadle to go well. I want Don Cheadle's <laughs> meeting to go well. <laughs> you want to, want to ruin? I don't want to ruin anything for Don Cheadle.
0: You want to do right by Don Cheadle?
2: Yes. Yeah, so when people live on with their lives and they go tell their friends, "I met Don Cheadle. <laughs> he was so nice." You know, that's all I strive for. I,
0: I think the perspective that you have on fame is, I mean, it's an it's an it's not it's not for me to say whether it's a healthy one, but it's certainly an interesting one and a very grounded one, but it kind of makes sense because I was, I was doing research getting ready for this interview today. Mm -hmm. Um, And you don't come from a showbiz family at all, right? No,
2: mm -mm, at all. Uh, I always say like, I I didn't know anybody in television. Only person I knew in television was a guy who repaired TVs in my neighborhood. (laughs) Like it was such a far, my father worked at a hospital Uh, as janitor my mom was a nurse's assistant you know uh and then yeah we had changes in our lives that you know made things you know a little bit rougher or whatever where you know we were welfare and that kind of stuff but um yeah I mean I, I didn't really it was all new and so I just was like once I once I realized like I wanted to do improv and then I had some talent at it I just started to go for it, you know.
0: Where, like, where did that come from? The, like, that, that's, quite a, that's quite a thing to figure out that you want to do improv and you want to do it for real.
2: Well, I was just a fan of comedy, you know. I love Saturday Night Live. I love Monty Python.
1: I fart in your general direction. Your mother was a hamster and your father smelt of elderberries. Is there someone else up there we could talk to? No, now go away or I shall taunt you a second time.
2: Um, I loved stand-up comics, George Carlin, Richard Pryor.
1: How can women be so cool when you are angry? Don't you tell me, I love you, don't you see? Yes, dear, I'm going for a walk. <laughs> a walk? I want to fight!
2: Yeah, I just, I just had a big thing for it. And when I was in college, I read an article about a guy teaching in, improv in Detroit and he, I went and took a class and I knew that this guy had studied under another guy who, Dale Close, who had taught all of these people from Saturday Night Live and stuff. So that I, I sort of was a nerd and I knew the history of SNL and everybody that was involved in National Lampoon and stuff like that. And so when I found saw this article that this guy was teaching improv and he had learned from Dell Close, I went took his classes, and I had an app- I sort of was decent at it in the beginning, you know, and I loved it and um and then I moved to chicago and because I knew that's where everything was second city improv Olympic, my friend Mark Belchman was another actor from Detroit moved to Chicago first and was like, you got to come out here. Yeah. This is where it's at, you know?
0: I mean, it really was like when you get to Chicago for, for second city, I mean, mm -hmm. you, so I I assume you would just audition and get in.
2: Well, I mean, I auditioned and got in eventually, but it, I lived in Chicago for like a year working at a, uh, a, a radio, a store that sold stereos. And then I worked at a record shop like for a year and did, I just did improv At Improv Olympic, I took classes there, took classes at Second City. And so they sort of knew me, you know, around the like, you know, group of Chicago improvisers at the time. I was an African-American. It it was only a couple of us. Right, right. And so, yeah, I just did it a bunch. And then Second City had me audition for the touring company. And then that's where I got hired. And once I started doing that, I... I didn't work at another record store in my life.
0: (laughs) Is that hard to tell your folks? Like when you come from a working class family, is it hard to go to your folks and go, I'm going to, I'm going to make my money from the arts?
2: No, I think they would have been more upset if they, if if we were a wealthy family, you know, my family was like, no, why not? You know, it's better than, you know, working at Ford, (laughs) you know, you got nothing to lose when you got nothing to lose. And I had nothing to lose. I was already in college and uh, I was like in my third year. And I just thought like, here's a story. And I'll tell you is that I went and saw uh, Stop Making Sense by the Talking Heads at this theater. And I loved it and went and saw it. It was here in Detroit and I saw it a few times. I was sitting in my car one night after watching the movie and I thought those guys had to make a decision one day that they're either going to be go go and be musicians or they're going to continue their art career and become artists or whatever they were doing you know and I thought that had to be a really big decision and big day and I said I thought to myself that today is not that day for me wow Either I'm gonna go and finish college or I'm gonna go and give acting a try. I'm gonna really go into improv and really push myself. And so I gave myself five years and I said, if I'm not a working actor by the end of five years, I'd come back to Detroit, I'd go back to school, get my degree, become a marketing person or whatever. And then and five years later, almost to the month that I saw that movie, I was working on SNL.
0: Wow, Tim. Yeah. Wow. True
2: story, true story. So I give a lot of credit to David Byrne, Talking Heads <laughs> and that movie. Um, Cause I just thought like, I don't want to look back and regret not trying, you know? And I, and I was talking with my kids recently about the career decisions and stuff, you know? And I told, I told them, I I don't regret it. Like, I don't look back on my life and say, boy, I wish I would have went into marketing or I wish I would have, you know, went into journalism. Um, and that was exactly what I wanted. I wanted to be able to look back and when I made, I did what I wanted to do, you know.
0: Um, so, Yeah. That's a powerful thing and to, to be able to look back and say, hey, I didn't want any regrets and then to be able to live a life where we're going like, hey, that, that, that did kind of work out. And also, you got yeah. to live through like a really amazing time. Like, I was just talking, yeah. I, I've, I've had this conversation with people before where like, as a fan of comedy and as someone who's read the Saturday Night Live books and like watched all the documentaries and National Lampoon, I mm-hmm. have this idea of like these eras of comedy that were really important and, you know, I, they're sort of built up in my mind. I'm sure the reality of them is very, very different. But that time. Yeah. In second City, when you were there with like Chris Farley was there, mm-hmm. Bob Odenkirk was there right. and, and Bob Odenkirk my understanding of it it was that was during the time that Bob did Matt Foley motivational speaker, right right was at second city i mean that 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 must have been a really magical time to to be there,
2: yeah, it was uh even just during that period in Chicago like the list of people that are like nationally known comedians or writers during that period is just amazing. And I'm proud to be a part of that generation of actors, you know, it was just amazing time. Stephen Colbert, you know, Amy Sedaris, Jeff Garland, um, you know, uh, Adam McKay, uh, Tina Fey, you know, Uh, it's just, I mean, if you look back at the names of people um, during that period, were all in Chicago. Dan Castellaneta from The Simpsons, the Simpsons yeah. Richard Kine. Yeah, I mean, it was an amazing group. And and it's just, improv is like tennis, you know? It's like you get better working with people that are great, you know?
0: I find the, the myth around Chris Farley very interesting. I mean, I've watched the documentaries yeah. about him, and I've got to talk to a couple of people who knew him very well. But you got to, right. you, you got to improvise with him pre-SNL and pre-fame. Mm-hmm. H- how was how was playing tennis with him?
2: Uh, it was great because you could lob stuff to him and he would just send it back across the court super hard.
1: Wrigley Field, Tim.
2: Yep, I tell you, there's no better job in the world than working security in Wrigley Field. Right you
1: are. You know, on a day like this, it makes me feel a little guilty about taking a paycheck over there. I know what you mean. <laughs> <laughs> What's so up, man? Get upside down. Personnel only. It's okay, okay, I'm authorized. Yeah, well, you're in the wrong area. We'd like you behind the barrier,
2: please. And he got—he would also, he just played in the moment. You know, like the Matt Foley thing, for instance, was a aspect of what Chris did in a bunch of other improv sketches that we would do. He would do this loud guy who was couldn't really control his emotion.
1: Brian, from what I've heard, you're using your paper not for writing, but for rolling doobies. You're going to be doing a lot of doobie rolling when you're living in a van down by the river.
2: And, you know, seeing him do that sketch every night, you know, was just fun. I got to watch him like two feet away, just watching him, like, because he would always, the sketch that you saw on SNL was, Really, the finished version of that sketch after we had improvised it for a year or whatever, you know. So all of this stuff, you know, those that, that those extra things you see about, I'm, um, you know, that was all stuff that we came with, came up with as we improvised it. Uh,
0: you're, you're not going to end up. You're, you're going to wind up not ending up to jack squat that kind of thing, you know.
1: Well, I'm here to tell you that you're probably going to find out as you go out there that you're not going to amount to jack. Squat!
2: Yes, yeah. Yeah. And I'm moving in, you know, that. like all of that stuff was in the sketch, but the way he did it as he got comfortable doing it just changed, you know?
1: Well, as I see it, there is only one solution. And that is for me to get my gear, move it on in here, because I'm going to bunk with you, buddy. We're going to be buddies. We're going to be pals. We're going to wrestle around. <laughs> Old Matt's going to be your shadow. Here's you. Here's Matt. There's you. There.
2: Uh, and when he would do it on stage with us, man, he would, like, take off his jacket and throw it on the floor. He would whip his glasses, shake his head so hard that he would whip his glasses across the stage. He would pick me up and when he would say to, like, <laughs> we're going to be buddies. We're going to be pals. He would lift me up and like carry me around and stuff and then set me back down in the chair really hard, you know? (laughs) Um, but he would do stuff like that, man. He just, he was a joy. I loved him so much. And yeah, I loved him so much, man.
0: Is he, is he, is he part of the reason you got on, was it your friendship with him and like your collaboration with him? I should say more than friendship, like your ability to work together part of what got you both to Saturday Night Live or was he there first?
2: Uh, he was there before me, but I think Mike Myers probably for me was the original person that was like, hey, uh, Tim Meadows is good or something. Cause I knew Mike uh, very well in Chicago also. He was another person from that group of people.
1: Maybe you're a compulsive liar or something.
2: Well, let's just say I'm not quite right upstairs. My mother was a track star. She was so whacked out on steroids. She didn't even know she was pregnant. And then I came out, 15 pounds of muscle and a brain the size of a walnut. Thanks, Mom. Enjoy the trophies. Damn.
1: Is any of that true?
2: No, man, I'm making it up. And so Mike got there first, and I was good friends with him. And then Farley was hired second. And when they came to see Farley at Second City, they I was in a lot of scenes with him because we had we had already done two reviews. So he and I had a bunch of scenes that were in another review that we did the night that they came to see him. So I was just all over the sketches that he was in that night. So they couldn't help but notice me. And I also during that period, I tell this story all the time, but was that he and I just loved improvising. And so we worked six nights a week at Second City. And then on our night off, we would go improvise at improv-, improv Olympic, which is this other improv theater. And so during that period, before they, I, they came to see us, I was improvising seven days a week every night. And when they came to see us, I was just on fire and on confident beyond what I've ever been before because I knew what I was doing, you know? And I also knew they were just coming to see him. So I didn't really think like this is my big shot. I just thought I'm going to make my boy look good. We're going to bring up the best sketches that he's in and we're going to kill it for him, you know? Uh, and that's what we did. I didn't think about it. And I give that advice to younger people too. Like never think that this is the big break, like especially for auditions or things like that. Just do it. Just do
0: it. Take it, take that, take the stakes out of it and kind of do the yeah. thing that you've been training at and working at for a long time and just do that. Exactly. Yeah when when you get to saturday saturday night live you get a thing um that very few cast members do is and i mean if they're lucky enough to get one is you get a signature role i mean mm-hmm. the 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 ladies man um character on saturday night live you know uh blows up and i'm aware because of the actor strike we can't really talk about the film and we can't really talk mm. about the film version of it, but, but I can, I can at least say that like there are <laughs> no one, no one can touch me. I'm in Toronto, man. Like no one's going to come yeah. and get me. Uh, uh, but there's a, um, you know, there's, there's, you know, Wayne's world is an example of that. Like the films that were made based on Saturday night live property. And mm-hmm. the ladies man was one of them. Can you tell the story of where the ladies man came from? I couldn't find it when I was, when I was getting ready for this today.
2: Well, the voice is a, uh, I started to do a black version of Bill Murray's uh, Carl character from uh,
1: Caddyshack. Who is the gopher's ally? His friend. The harmless squirrel and the friendly rabbit. I'm going to use you two guys to do my dirty work for me. (laughs)
2: and i started doing that as the like very seed of the in the beginning and then i started making him more detroit and i started thinking about guy when i was doing it just the voice itself the guys that i knew in detroit when i was working at this liquor store who were just players and they just were very slick and very smooth and had girlfriends multiple girlfriends or whatever um and so I started doing this voice to make my ex my my wife at the time laugh. So I would make I would do prank phone calls. And I would go, "Yeah, listen, what's happening? Uh yeah, this is uh my name is uh, Jane James Whitaker. And listen, I want to order a pizza. Like can I get one with pepperoni uh extra mushrooms and then, you know, Don't no tomato sauce, though. I don't like tomato sauce on my pizza. Put that in a jar on the side and just send that jar of tomato sauce with me. I will then sprinkle the amount of tomato sauce I think is appropriate on my pizza. Okay. so my my wife would be laughing and then we'd hang up the phone. They would deliver the pizza or whatever, you know, and that's just an example of what I would do but uh, they would deliver a pizza, which I did a lot. And then they would be looking for the guy. And I would just, it would just be me or my wife. And I would go, <laughs> hi, how are you? Uh, thank you for the pizza. <laughs> or she would pick up, you know, she would just be, hi, <laughs> you know. Uh, and so I would do that. I would do it all the time just to make her laugh. And I told my friend the writers on the show, uh, Harper Steele and Dennis McNicholas, Uh, about this prank phone call voice that I was doing. And then I said, if you want to do it on the show, and mind you, I'd already been on the show for seven years, something like that. Oh, wow. Um, And so I told them if they wanted to do something, if they had any ideas that I was interested in maybe doing it on the show, and went back to my office. Literally, 10 seconds later, they came knocking on my door. And and Harper goes, "Uh, yeah, don't tell that idea to anybody else. We, We got an idea for it. It's a guy who gives out love advice on, uh, on TV, but it's like a low-rent TV show. Uh, he's from the 70s. He is an Afro. According to the doctors now, this Viagra can help those sad men who suffer from chronic wangular softitude. Um, it is all very scientific, but I am prepared to answer any questions that uh, you may have because I am Leon Phelps. The latest man. We n- never wanted it to be a hit or to be, we just loved doing it. And so, you know, w- the whole movie thing and everything else was like just, it was just given to us. It, we They asked us if we would write a script. That was how it started. And so when you put 3 right, we're well, like, we can all write this thing. So we wrote a really good script. And then it just kept moving on from there. But like all the way through, we we thought, oh, this is never going to make it, you know.
0: After you did Ladies' Man on Saturday night, did you know yes. Sunday that it, that it was working?
2: Yes. I knew Saturday night it was working, <laughs> you know. <laughs> I knew at the party afterwards, like uh, my favorite was I was at the after party and Leonardo DiCaprio walked up and said, what's happening in my ear as he was walking out of the party? <laughs> and I was like, oh, that's, uh, I think this might be a hit. There
0: you go. Coming up on the show, Tim Meadows talks more about his time on Saturday Night Live. Can I just tell you that I could spend every show just asking people what it was like to be on SNL and like who did they get to meet and how did they put it together? It's, it's endlessly fascinating. And we talk a little bit more about that coming up on the show, including his time with the late Canadian comedian Norm MacDonald. More Tim Meadows after this. I'm Tom Power. You're listening to Q. You're in the middle of my conversation with comedian Tim Meadows. Tim was one of the longest-serving cast members on Saturday Night Live. He was on from the early 90s to the early 2000s, meaning he was a part of a couple of golden eras of the show. And he was also on with and became close friends with the late Canadian comedian Norm MacDonald. Norm was the host of Weekend Update for a good chunk of Tim's time on the show. And Norm died a few years ago. It was a real shock because while he died of cancer, he didn't let the public or even seemingly his friends know that he was sick at all. So since his death, people have been sharing their stories of Norm, who, while being quite brilliant, was also kind of unknowable. So in the next part of our conversation, Tim talks about how he remembers Norm Macdonald and some of the last interactions he had with him. Here's our conversation.
2: I just remember during uh, we were touring with Sandler uh, when he started going back out and doing big shows again. And he took all of his friends with us, with him, uh, Norm, Spade, Schneider, myself, you know, Farley Brothers. And. um, It was just no doubt like no, like we only did five minutes or something like that, seven minutes each and Norm would just go out and do one bit for like the time that he was out there and he would do like, and he was working on Hitler's dog at the time.
1: Hitler had a dog, now you think of that. I'm no fan of Hitler. I never liked him. I didn't like him before it was cool not to like him. But there was a dog in history who loved Hitler more than anyone? He would wake up in the morning, you know, where's Hitler? You know? Every
2: night we would all stand on the side and watch him do this bit over and over again because we all loved it. Th- just thought it was genius, you know. Um, and then afterwards we had like a text chain uh, between the at comics on that tour that we kept going for a long time. And I remember Norm started texting Bob Dylan's... Um, Song.
0: Blue. Oh God, what was it? It's all over now, baby blue. Yes, sir. I got That's you. it. I got you. Your
1: lover who just walked out the door has taken all his blankets from the floor. The carpet too is moved. And it's all over now,
2: baby blue. It's all over now. He started typing the lyrics and then we all started typing the lyrics until we had all typed the whole song out, man. And
0: why that why that song? I don't know, man. I
2: don't know. I don't know. I saved that we saved that text like when he passed, we all started texting on it again. Just to like say let you know, let's not let this thing go. But like you know, the hindsight, side, you know, he didn't tell us anything, so we didn't know anything, you know.
1: Oh, um,
0: I understand because the lyrics are, um, you must leave now. Take what you need. You think yeah. will last, but whatever it is you wish to keep, you better grab it fast. It's a yeah. so, it's a song about the the end of. I mean, this is strange to talk about. It is it's a song about the end of someone's life, and and there might have been some knowledge on Norm's part there.
2: Yeah, there could have been. Um, But Normie also was like very, to me, especially because I had just started doing stand up. And so, me performing in front of those guys and in front of stadiums of all, you know, Norm was so nice to me, man. And he didn't go like, Timmy, you're a great comedian. He goes, You've come, but he did honestly say, You've come, you've, you've, you're way better than I was expecting you to be, (laughs) which was a compliment for him. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because if I sucked, he would have told me you you're not good, you you shouldn't be doing this, you know. But he didn't, and and um, yeah, man, he was just he was great and just strange and funny and sweet and complicated and you know he was just he was just a very unique dude. Um, and I, I would say too, like we recently because of the Matt Perry. Yeah. Passing away. Yeah. They've had they've had this sketch that we did called Sarcasm 101 on SNL back in the day. And as I was watching it on the Internet, there's a shot of Norm. He, well, there's a set moment where he Norm goes, hey, 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 because he's supposed to stop them from talking and, and make a comment. I don't think Norm was a fan of the sketch, but he had to be in it anyways. Yeah. And so he says, hey, 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 he does it a long time. And he he looks at me and Will Ferrell to try to make us laugh.
1: She was faking? Catch on slower. Hey, I don't think she's really a student. Be a bigger moron. Can I still take a bath with you or?
2: Uh, And when I watched it, I went, oh yeah, I remember that. He hated being in this sketch. (laughs)
0: <laughs> he kind of hated being in sketches, didn't he? Didn't he like? Period. Yeah, yeah. Well, the ones that he wanted to be
2: in, you know, like Jeopardy or you know, the Letterman. Sketches, he, yeah, yeah, he was fine doing. I remember one time I I I, I did got him. I I was doing Michael Jackson, and he was a bartender, and um I, I he was he was asking me something, and I was supposed to say. Well, um, I was talking to them and I said to the person that, and I says to the guy. And then I say whatever the rest of the line is. But we had this joke going around where we would say, I says to the guy, I says to the guy, I says, I says. Like from a 1920s movie. yeah." And Norm and just a couple other people had that joke going around, you know. And during the sketch, I go. Well, I don't know. I was talking to her and I says to her, I says to the girl, I says to the, I says to her. And Norm just like, look, he doesn't crack, but he knows exactly what I was trying to do.
1: Uh,
0: <laughs> ah. yeah, it ah. So fun. Um, man, it, it, I, we, we, we took a little bit more of your time than, than we were yeah, anticipating, yeah. but I really do appreciate you making the time for us. Um, uh, it, it's really great to kind of reminisce on these days in Saturday Night Live and these. Because it was sort of a dream era, and it's sort of the era that a lot of people talk about. And, yeah. Um, it's in, in well, and, thanks. Yeah, and it's been amazing to kind of follow you. I'll, I'll, I'll close off by asking this question, which I thought might be fun to ask at the end. Okay, okay. so Tim Meadows wakes up one morning mm-hmm. and he finds mm-hmm. out that mm-hmm. he has been in everyone's dreams uh, overnight.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. What do you, what do you do? Uh, <laughs> Get, mom. <laughs>
2: I, I stay in the house. <laughs> I don't go anywhere. I turn off everything. I don't deal with anything. It's a trip though, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Got to yeah. see the movie. Yeah. Got to see the
0: movie. I would, uh, I would, yeah, I think I'd do the same thing. I would stay in. I'd change my name to, like, Ron Johnson and move to Idaho (laughs) and never talk to anyone
2: again. I'd change my name to Darius Rucker (laughs) and go into
0: music. Tim, thanks so much for the time.
2: You bet. Thanks,
0: man. It was a blast. Tim Meadows is an actor and comedian. You can see him now in the film Dream Scenario, which is out in theaters on Friday. I feel like I want to do another podcast that's just called Can You Tell Me About Norm MacDonald? Like, given that I got to spend a little bit of time with that guy, and he's one of my favorite comedians, I would just any time anyone can tell me anything about Norm Macdonald, I'm just I'll, I'll 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 drink it up all day. I'll, I'll have a full plate of it. Um, so thanks to Tim Meadows for that. The other conversation up on our podcast today, especially if you're like in the arts or if you're interested in tech, is a really interesting one because uh, on the surface, Good Kid are like a Canadian indie rock band, but they have tens of thousands of fans all around the world, no matter where they go. How did they get that? Well, it's by approaching the music business very differently than other Canadian bands do. Creating a community online, giving a lot of their music away for free, and it helps that they're all computer programmers as well as musicians. A very untypical Canadian music interview with the other podcast up on our feed today. Go check that out where we got this one. We'll see you soon. Later on.